The Wiser Podcast, conversations, audio essays, and events from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Cesar Mbofu-Walsh, a fellow at the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research, and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. Isabel Hofmeyer is Professor of African Literature at Witz and Global Distinguished Professor at New York University. Her latest book, forthcoming from Duke University Press, is Hydro-Colonialism, Coast, Custom House, and Dockside Reading. Well, Professor Hofmeyer, thanks so much for taking some time to speak about your work. It's th- thanks. It's a great pleasure to be on the Wiser podcast. So tell us a little bit about this work and summarize what it's about. Okay. It's uh, really about three institutions, the Colonial Custom House, Copyright, and Censorship. And in a colonial context... As you can imagine, most printed matter came from outside the colony and had to be funneled through the port city. There, customs officials would check to see that it was not pirated, seditious or obscene, and they could seize any material that they considered to be suspect. So they effectively became the first censors and the first officials setting policy and practices around copyright. And so the histories of censorship and copyright rather unexpectedly um, have this link to dockside protocols. Um, most colonial customs houses are in ports, were in port cities um, between land and sea. And this coastal or littoral location is very important in my story. And what the book really tries to do is bring together oceanic and ecological themes with histories of these two institutions, copyright and censorship, that we tend to think of as rather dry institutions. So I think in some ways what the book is really trying to do is put together uh, water and books or water and paper, which we often think of as very as the opposites of each other. It's a very interesting prism through which to put those two ideas into conversation. And I was wondering, you know, the last part of the title, this dockside reading, if you could elaborate a little bit more on, on what this dockside reading is and why it becomes so central to the way that you okay. collide these Thanks. ideas of, um, of water and paper. The, the dockside reading in the title is, I was interested in what happened to books as they hit the dockside. How did these customs officials actually read or deal with these books? Um, and the, one of the bigger arguments I think of the book is that the... Um, printed matter tended ultimately to be treated like any other form of cargo and to be subject to the logistics of cargo handling on the dock side. So these customs officials who really are tax collectors are certainly not keen readers. Um, And so what they try and do is deal with books as though they are a form of cargo. So they look at the outside signs, they look at the titles, they look at the covers, and then they might sample a little bit. So in a 400-page book, they might look at one or two paragraphs, rather like an excise man testing a consignment of alcohol. Um, And then also in relation to copyright, you could see much the same thing. Copyright, they face the problem that it's very difficult to know which law applies where. There's imperial law, there's colonial law, there was the law generated out of the Berne Convention. And so they had to make things up as they went along. And one of the things they did was to more or less treat copyright as something that was known as mark of origin. So this was something that had to appear on all cargo, you know, made in Germany, made in Australia, made in Canada. 
Um, and so what they did, because they were so uncertain of how, of which law was applying where, they treated this as a mark of origin, as a sign of where something had been made. Um, and particularly then in the case of British copyright, it came to be um, seen also as a sign of respectability and that somehow this book was quote-unquote white um, and so copyright itself started to resemble a form of racial trademark. And in terms of the way that you understood um, sources and the kind of sources that you tried to bring together to tell that story, take us through some of the choices that you made and, and the sources on which you relied. Okay, so... Um, I went and I uh, worked out where the customs and excise archives were um, and I set off really with some trepidation, expecting very dry and tedious, tedious reports on tariffs and um, uh, taxes and those sorts of things. Um, and I was really astonished at what a fascinating archive it really is. It's full often of actual objects, you know, so there would be swatches mm -hmm. of fabric, there were packets of seeds, there were um, labels of tinned condensed milk. Um, and then in the documents accompanying around these objects, there were endless debates on what these things actually were. So, you know, was a substance butter or margarine? Mm. Are medicinal herbs the same as tea? Um, and very, and in, in one a very a long-standing favourite that ran on for years was what was the difference between a small pilchard and a sardine? Um, so through <laughs> that, I came to realise that these um, they, 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 they effectively were a kind of dockside ontologist. You know, they were decreeing what these objects mm -hmm. actually were. It's an interesting way of putting it, and and you locate this analysis in a broader frame which you've actually created of hydro-colonialism. And of course, that's the, the main title of the book. I wondered how you came about this term and if you could speak about how you see this term working and, and what it means to you. Okay. So I think really the background to the term is that living in the age of climate catastrophe, um, the age of the Anthropocene, as it's often known, um, it's really the sort of such a pressing issue that it seems to me one has to make one's work speak to that in some ways. So my background really is I have worked a lot in post-colonial literature and post-colonial literary theory has been extremely important. Um, but yeah. that has tended mainly to be land focused. So this term then both wanted to pay respect to post-colonial theory and the kinds of work that it had done, uh, but it also wanted to take post-colonial theory offshore. Um, and it wanted really to try and add water to de and depth to post-colonial studies, which with the exception really of especially Caribbean and to a certain extent Pacific studies, uh, tends very much to be tied up with debates uh, of the anti-colonial nation, which tend to be particularly focused on land. So um, it was an attempt to doff my cap to post-colonial theory while trying to extend that field through this term. And what what kind of different insights were you able to glean by, by using this term as opposed to, say, employing you know, just the term colonialism, for example. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, it it was um, 
because I was working with the port city, uh, I had to think, start to think a lot about oceanic and ecological questions. And there's a lot of really fascinating and really rich work on port cities, uh, but it tends very much to be on land or above water. And so because the, these customs officials worked so much across land and water, they would often be going out on small boats. Um, often uh, banned books were dumped at sea. Um, they could, uh, port city authorities could declare water around a ship to be quarantined. So I became interested also in how they were using water in as a form of, of, of governance and as a form of authority. So I started to be, become really interested in the whole interaction really between land, sea, water and empire. And to think about the different ways in which, um, you know, uh, water is both water is often colonized water is one of the you know um, central issues in land colonization um how uh, there's yeah so i started to think very much about the long histories of interactions between water as a resource and empire as a form absolutely um and just just one more question on this conceptual frame which I think is, is so interesting. Um, how did, how do you think hydrating the analysis, as it were, um, helps us understand other things that might be happening now, for example, even on land? Do you think that this idea of hydrocolonialism might stretch even to questions um, away from ports and docks and water itself, but tell us something about politics on dry land, as it were? Yeah, hydrate is an absolutely great term. Um, and it is one of the things that this book also tries to do is draw on an emerging set of methods about how to go below the waterline. You know, so how does one think about histories underwater? You know, we're very good of thinking about histories on land or histories on the surface of the water, but how does one actually go? What are the sort of immersive methods that we might use? So just to give you one example which the book explores is in South Africa um, if you look at any body of water you are looking always at post-colonial or creolized water because in that water are a set of com com complete often competing beliefs about what this water is so you know most South African waterways bustle with congregations of deities and mermaid-like figures um, certain kinds of water are often associated with with ancestors. Um, you have then, you know, engineering views of water. You have imperial views of water, um, and so water becomes a very rich archive or site in which to think about all of these competing interests um, in uh, in any kind of uh, post-colonial context. Now, in terms of the the works significance for uh, broader areas of scholarship. Take us through what you think the broader significance of this work is. Okay, so I think it speaks, it's a, it's a, got a, quite a broad interdisciplinary reach and it speaks to a number of areas just in terms of, the one is histories of censorship. Um, there's been a lot of work obviously on censorship under apartheid. This book gives a much longer history 
It also, most, virtually all work on censorship assumes that censors read the whole book. And here's a very different kinds of censorship. It's much more an object-oriented reading. Um, so I was uh, interested in that. Um, just mm. the copyright, very briefly, provides a very different view from what debates in copyright have established from the Euro-American context. And that is very important to a lot of literary debate. And there it's very much centered on the question of the author. How do these legal mechanisms enable the concept of the author to take off? Here, um, as the, these customs officials were certainly not, had no interest in authors, these books were coming from thousands of miles away, and they much more focused on the book itself um, and developed often quite carceral attitudes towards that book, you know, which they could detain, detain or seize or in some cases tear up mm -hmm. into little bits and pieces. Um, so that, and, and also the whole um, idea of copyright as racial trademark is very different from the, the, the way that we normally understand, understand copyright. Mm -hmm. And then if I can just say, obviously hydro-colonialism is also hopefully a framework that other literary scholars can take forward the book also explores different ways in which you can read for water in literary texts. You know, how, what are the methods you can do use use for that? Absolutely. I was just thinking, you know, in, in the field um, that I work in, in international relations, for example, this, this concept could travel in politics and in, in history. I can imagine it being very useful for all kinds of modes of understanding um, the interactions between people at these uh, intersectional points. Uh, completely, yeah. And as, you know, water wars will become more and more common, it will become a very central way, I should imagine, of thinking about international mm -hmm. relations. So I think just finally, uh, I wonder if you could situate this work in in your other work and and tell us a little bit about how this work relates to your other work. Um, Gandhi's printing press is obviously uh, preeminent among those. I am, I think I'm very much in the generation that where I'm a creature of print, um, and so I've been very, really fascinated by print culture um, across my uh, career. Um, and I'm particularly interested in print culture and reading. And so the Gandhi's printing press was a continuation of that interest. And Gandhi, interestingly, was very, very opposed to copyright. So when I finished the book, I was really interested, to, you know, was his position unusual or not? What, what actually was the situation with regard to colonial copyright? And I went uh, fossicking and ferreting about, and that led me then then to uh, the Customs House. All, also, the Gandhi's printing press was part of work that I'd done um, coming out of Indian Ocean Studies, which has been very important over the last couple of years. But that work, like much uh, earlier oceanic work, didn't really have much ocean in it. So it was an attempt then to try to get to embed print studies of print culture in a deeper oceanic studies that was much more material and ecological. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the, the work is filled with fascinating analysis and new new ways of, of looking at old questions. And uh, I must say, I also chuckled at the notion of receiver of wrecks. I think sometimes we all feel a little bit like rece receivers of wrecks in the in the academy. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic, it's a it's a it's a wonderful title. But thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.